You're listening to Seeing and Believing, the podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan, and my co-host Wade Bearden is not here, whether he's on vacation or currently making his way through a realm consisting of memory, regret, and looming mortality is up for interpretation. Fortunately, I have Think Christian Sarah Welch Larson here this week to help me think through Charlie Kaufman's heady, challenging new film from Netflix, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, as well as an entry in our Summer of Darkness film noir marathon, which is currently lurking in a shadowy doorway waiting to make its grand entrance. That's right, we're reviewing The Third Man here on episode 264 of Seeing and Believing. Jake, my boyfriend. It's snowing. Winter is coming in. We have a real connection. A rare and intense attachment. I've never experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Weird. I'm visiting Jake's parents for the first time. He hasn't been my boyfriend for very long. They really are looking forward to meeting you. I think you're ending things. Hello? We're here. Oh, hi. Oh, it's all wet. Here they come. Jake has told us so much about you. He's told me so much about both of you, too. And you came anyway. <laughs> Jake tells me you're studying quantum psychics. Ooh, physics. Really? But there's just something profoundly wrong here. Are you okay? We're here on episode 264 of Seeing and Believing, and I'm really excited this week because even though Wade is currently adventuring in the snowy wastes of Colorado on vacation at the moment, I was able to land uh, quite a great guest for this week's episode, and I have a feeling, Sarah, that I'm going to need a little bit of help with at least this first film to to unpack it all. So <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Sarah Welch Larson is is here in the virtual recording booth with me. Good to be here. Happy to be here. Excited to have a Chicago Critics takeover of Seeing and Believing. <laughs> Chicago critics represent. Sarah Welch Larson is joining me this week from Chicago. She is a contributor and podcaster for Think Christian. You might have heard her on the most recent episode uh, about uh, what was it that, that you were you and Josh were talking about on that most recent episode? Oh, we were talking about Palm Springs, um, and I had the nerve to uh, downplay Groundhog Day in comparison to Palm Springs, um, but I maintain my stance: Palm Springs is the superior movie. You, well, it's funny that that's actually one reason why I thought of you for this podcast, because that's actually my take on the comparison between the two films. So, oh, excellent. So I'm, you know, I, I'm glad to have a like minded person here to to help me uh, spread the good news of Palm Springs. So that's an added bonus. And we have a doozy of a film to discuss on this first segment here. Charlie Kaufman is he's out with a new film, which excited me as a as a fan of his other films. Uh, Sarah, did you have any uh, previous relationship to uh, Kaufman's other films as a director, as a screenwriter? Like, what are, what's your general barometer on Kaufman as, as a whole? 
Not as much as I would like. Um, I hadn't seen any of the other movies he's directed, but I have seen um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and I've seen Being John Malkovich. Um, I liked Eternal Sunshine a little bit more, but I'm curious. I'd love to see his other stuff. I've been told again and again that Synecdoche, New York, is probably very much up my alley, so I'll probably be seeking that out pretty soon after watching this particular movie. Yeah, I'll 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 jump on that bandwagon. I think Synecdoche is is really good. It it might be among the best of its decade for me. So I don't mm. know if that if that plug bumps it up on your to watch list. But I am glad that we've got you here to talk about. I'm thinking of ending things because yeah, this film is uh, is quite something. It's Charlie Kaufman's third feature film as a director and his eighth as a screenwriter. And its plot, at least according to the official Netflix synopsis, seems pretty simple. Despite second thoughts about their relationship, a young woman takes a road trip with her new boyfriend to his family farm. Trapped at the farm during a snowstorm with Jake's mother and father, the young woman begins to question the nature of everything she knew or understood about her boyfriend, herself, and the world. Now, that's the Netflix official synopsis right there, and it's a good deal more tidy than the experience of actually watching the film, which for me spiraled and jackknifed unpredictably through plot events and character turns that in the end made me and the audience question the nature of reality every bit as much as the film's characters do. So, Sarah, you, you've seen some of Kaufman's other films, so you know that he's built a little bit of a brand out of very heady, high-concept, complex uh, plot machinations and all of that. This movie is definitely one of his headier ones, or at least that's how mm -hmm. I would describe it. So I'm going to put you on the spot right now and just ask you straight up, what do you think this movie is about? And do you think it's successful in how it's about it? That's uh, a tall order, um, but I will give my gamest attempt, um, and it's probably going to get a little convoluted um, itself, but I think this movie is about our attempts to understand the world we live in through the art we consume and the ways that that art both allows us to see the world a little more clearly and also warps our perceptions of the world and of the other people that we meet. Um, and then in turn, also our own faulty memories and perceptions that change our own understanding of art and of others over time. So it's kind of a spiral of perception uh, to change and then back again, um, kind of a feedback loop of false perception or almost not quite hitting the mark perception, and then how we change in reaction to that. Does that track with you? <laughs> <laughs> that That's a really good explanation. And I think it's... It's, I, I don't know if it's to this movie's credit or it's definitely, it definitely says something about this movie though, that when, as I was listening to your description of the film's themes, I, that some of those things I didn't really, didn't really pop out to me as strongly when I was watching it, the, mm -hmm. what you were saying about art and its effect on, on memory and perception, uh, that, I mean, that wasn't something that popped out at me, but listening to you say, I'm like, oh yeah, that was in there. It just wasn't something that I cottoned to right away. So, I mean, that's probably uh, a good little snapshot of how this film works, which is that it is kind of about a lot of things and Kaufman weaves all those different themes together in this kind of Kafka-esque story of this this young couple going to meet the parents for the first time and it kind of 
snowballing into uh, other anxieties and worries and uh, experiences that you wouldn't have expected just from the setup. Mm-hmm. For me, I uh, the the relationship angle popped out to me a lot more. It seems to me that this is a film that's a lot about uh, looking back at the past and mm-hmm. and the way the the ways that the present can kind of assert itself into those memories and how perceptions can color or even change the past events in unexpected ways and how that process can happen almost imperceptibly. Like it, this is a film that just morphs and changes so much. And so suddenly that for me, it really mirrored kind of the inner psychic landscape of a guy making sense of uh, the experiences, the artworks, the people that he's encountered over the course of his life. And yeah, I don't know. That's, that's kind of what I took from it too. What, what does that track with you at all? Or especially the memory part? Yeah, that definitely tracks. Um, it's a slippery, really slippery movie. And I think one of the things that I liked about it was also one of the things that I had trouble with that we'll probably get into a little bit later on. But, um, it feels so interior in a way. And in places, it really felt like it was getting at what it feels like to be inside my own head in some ways, because it's continually spiraling back through these memories of what's going on. And um, I don't know, it just kind of it kind of gets at the re- the repetition of what it is like to think about the same thing over and over and over again. And I'm not a scientist. I don't remember like what the study was, but I have read or heard in a podcast somewhere that the act of memory is actually something where when you remember something, you f- you actually change the memory as you're remembering it. So that also tracked very much with me. And that's something that Kaufman calls out himself through his screenplay that Towards the beginning of the film, in fact, it might be one of the first lines, Jesse Buckley's character says that sometimes a thought is closer to reality than an action. The mm-hmm. The idea that just merely having an idea, it's not just something that's inside your head. It kind of has its own uh, reality field around it, and that can, in a way, affect the reality that as we live it. And that I found to be a, a really compelling idea, especially because this is this is a film that really seems interested in interior landscapes and how they manifest themselves in in the exterior. And mm-hmm. you know, the the screenplay names drops all these uh, people from David Foster Wallace to Pauline Kale to the Bible, and all of these kind of swirl together into this this whole tapestry of what it means to remember something and what the past even is to us after it's past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of like lends a whole new facet to the meaning of the phrase interior world, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. And it's interesting because I watched this movie on Sunday night And as I finished it, I knew that I thought it was good, but I wasn't sure if I liked it and I wasn't sure if I disliked it. And I knew that I would probably have a better sense of it after I'd slept on it, which is appropriate because it feels Mm -hmm. very dreamlike. And then I woke up Monday morning and realized, 
all of the things that I thought that I liked, I think I loved. And then everything that I had problems with within the movie, um, they kind of stood out a little bit more in the light of day. So I, I don't know if this movie is entirely successful at what it's getting at, but I'm not entirely sure that it really even needs to be because the movie is very much on its own terms doing something that I haven't seen very many other movies manage to do. So I maybe it's successful, maybe it's not. I'm not sure. Well, and that's that's kind of why the the descriptor Kafka-esque kept coming up for me as I was watching this film, because with Kafka, there's always just kind of this this dreamlike quality to so much of, of his work and, and to other works that kind of Ha- are, are spiritual descendants of him, right? Like the, you, mm-hmm. you read something that is Kafka-esque and it doesn't really make sense in the sense that you can sort of diagram out its plot or its character relationships to, to uh, a very clear, simple uh, overall structure. And yet there, there's something about that feels very, very true. Like it, it feels very intuitive, but also counterintuitive at the same time. And if I'm having, if that sounds weird, like I'm not explaining it very well, I think that also is very Kafkaesque, and that really, you, you, it, it's difficult to articulate exactly what Kaufman is doing with this film. And it mm-hmm. might be because Kaufman himself, if you asked him point blank, "What is this film about?" He even he might not be able to tell you because it's less. That's not so much the point of boiling it down to what it means and more about just the the experience of watching it. That's so funny that you say that because I actually have in my notes a moment where I say like if Kaufman were able to explain everything that's going on in this movie without the use of the movie, then the movie itself would have failed. So mm, yes. I completely track with you there. And there's actually... Um, as you were talking about the the Kafka-esque-ness of this movie, there's actually a quote, I think Kafka himself said it, where he talks about how art is not supposed to be something um, that is a comfort, um, but it's supposed to be like a, an axe for the frozen sea inside us. Um, and I don't remember the rest of the quote, but that has always, I read it years ago, and it's always stuck with me because it feels like Kafka's idea of art and Kaufman's idea of art both are looking to cut to the quick of the of the emotions that we are experiencing as we are watching or experiencing this art without actually ever being able to tell us how or why we feel the way that we do only that we have that reaction and that it is profound and it is deep and it is very difficult to explain <laughs> yeah and and for Kaufman it does feel like those emotions that he's trying to break the surface of or or get at all are a lot of them have to do with anxiety over death, over personal <laughs> shortcomings, uh, over regrets from the past. Uh, and, you know, anybody who's who's seen, especially some of his later films, will definitely recognize that as a very Kaufman-esque uh, way of approaching storytelling. Uh, so that is definitely of a piece with his work. I am curious to know, since you said that you... You, there were parts of the film that you disliked that you don't anticipate ever really coming around on. You 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 think that there are certain parts of this film that don't completely work. And I'm actually mm-hmm. curious to know what those things are, because I suspect that just like the things that we liked about this film or the themes that we saw in this film, those things that maybe didn't work as well are going to be just as 
individually oriented and idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the thing that I had the hardest time with was, um, I don't know, it's there's the there's this fundamental shift, and I can't even really pinpoint where in the movie it happens, but there is a shift in perspective. And when it, f- after I had clocked on that this shift had occurred, um, I wasn't really necessarily happy about it because I had appreciated the perspective that we had been getting before. I think I identified with that perspective a little bit more myself. And I couldn't quite understand what the point of introducing the story to us from that perspective was if we were going to go on to something completely different and try to attack it from a slightly different angle. And I I think that that's probably the point of the movie is that you can't really ever fully understand something from one single vantage point, but it didn't really work for me. I think probably it's, it, it didn't really work for me probably because it is one of those hallmarks of films that I see that are made primarily by men. (laughs) It, It ends up reverting to kind of a very male, perspective in a way that kind of took me out of the movie and kind of disappointed me because up until that point, I very much identified with the voice of the movie and what was going on um, in a way that I hadn't seen in very many other movies before. So I think that's probably a personal hang up more than anything else, though. Well, I I definitely do think that that I'm I, I know what you're talking about here. And we can we can go ahead and say it just so we're not dancing around too much and causing uh uh, confusion for listeners, but basically the film kind of starts off being told through the eyes of Jesse Buckley's character, who is alternately named Amy or Louisa or Lucy. It's never quite clear what her actual name is. She's the young woman in the credits. In the credits, she's credited as the young woman. Yeah. And the film kind of begins through her eyes. And then as this evening with the parents goes on and as they kind of get back in the car to drive back where they came from you're right that there is kind of this subtle shift where where we realize that maybe we've been seeing we've either been seeing everything through uh the boyfriend's eyes all along or we're we are now seeing it through his eyes whereas before we were not and that that shift is definitely it it takes a while to to get used to because you've mm-hmm. you're kind of expecting to be aligned in sympathy and point of view with the with Jesse Buckley's character and to suddenly be taken from that is an adjustment for sure and i can see how it would be a little bit of a disappointment especially given that Kaufman is so so used to sort of plumbing the anxieties of the male psyche. It was kind of mm-hmm. exciting to see him maybe attack that with a female protagonist and to have that end up not being the film's focus is it is a shift and maybe not an entirely satisfying one for some people. Yeah, especially because um, up until that point, a lot of what's going on feels kind of repetitive and self-conscious and a little bit, or depending on the point in the movie, a lot pretentious. And that felt very much like me on my worst days. Um, So it was a little bit of a disappointment to get that shift in perspective and realize, well, maybe this is just this other guy projecting everything on Jesse Buckley's character. Um, and maybe we're never really going to fully understand what's going on inside her head. And again, I think that's part of that's I, I'm not entirely sure that that's necessarily a weakness of the movie. I think 
that again, that is the point. It was just a little bit frustrating to realize that what I had thought was the point and what seems to be a little bit closer to the point um, hadn't quite lined up in a way that I had expected. And maybe that's a good thing. It's kind of good to be taken aback and to be surprised by art. That d- I would love to be surprised by art more. Um, but it surprised me in a way that wasn't really necessarily welcome. And I think I'm going to have to sit with that discomfort for a little bit longer. And I do think that this is ultimately, like I said, towards the beginning of the segment, this does seem to be a film about regret or about looking back at a past relationship and Mm -hmm. still trying to understand it. And ultimately, I think by the end of this film, it, it seems that that kind of attempt for uh, reconciliation or for understanding is never really quite brought home. I, mm-hmm. And again, the, the ending mm-hmm. is ambiguous and I think can be read a number of ways, but it does sort of seem to be the case that Kaufman is attempting to create on screen the the internal world. Uh, there's that phrase again. And mm-hmm. the, the perspective of somebody who wants to understand perhaps uh, why a relationship went south, or even if this isn't an, a literal relationship from the past, if it's more like we're seeing a composite or a fantasy of some sort, mm-hmm. it's still kind of characterized by that inability to really understand the other central figure in that. And for me, I, I found that incredibly engaging once I figured out that that was what the film was doing, mm-hmm. was to sort of like kind of lose myself in that and be less concerned with, okay, well, what what's really happening here? And more just sort of experiencing that perspective the way the character experiences it. I do love that this movie resists solving it. Um, I think a personal pet peeve of mine is is puzzle box movies where there is an answer to every single little thing. So I do love that this is such a slippery movie and that there are so many possible um, interpretations of what's going on. Um, and I love that I'm probably never going to be able to fully understand even the main gist of it, let alone all of the all of the little details. Um, can we talk about some of those details, though? Because there was some stuff that I really, really loved in this movie, and I feel like yeah. I kind of came down hard on it a little bit. Um, uh, I, I loved the colors. Um, and I loved the costuming and I appreciated like the hints at what was going on or the fact that they kind of get at what's going on just with the use of color palette. Um, there's a moment where I'm not sure if I noticed the first costume change, but there is a there is a series of small costume changes as the night goes on. And some of them are very subtle. It's just a change in color on Jesse Buckley's sweater. And then some of them are much more obvious, like different jewelry. Like she's wearing pearl earrings at one point. She's wearing hoop earrings at one point. Her hair is different from room to room. Sometimes she's wearing a dress. Sometimes she's wearing a sweater. Um, And I loved that that kind of got at the sense of like, something's not quite right here, or maybe this isn't everything like, maybe what we're seeing isn't the full story necessary, necessarily, even though we're seeing so many different angles on what could possibly be a part of that story. So I loved that. And I loved the jewel tones that kind of faded into like, um, there's this lovely blue color as they get back into the car and leave the farmhouse and start going back to where they came from. And as the night goes on and they drive into the storm, um, at first you can see both of their faces in the frame. 
um, Jesse Buckley's and Jesse Plemons's face. And as the conversation goes on, it looks almost as though their faces are drifting apart inside the car um, until at one point I realized their faces were framed alone, just a white face against a very dark gray background. Like they were literally just alone, disembodied, trying to understand and unable to do it and unable to make any connection. And that was heartbreaking. Um, but I loved the artistry behind that. So yeah, the filmmaker on this, uh, the cinematographer on this film is uh, Lucas Zoll, who is probably best known for working with uh, Pavel Pavlikovsky on uh, uh. Cold War and Ida. Uh, which you know makes sense. This is this is a film. It's shot in that you know tight Academy ratio. It's not mm-hmm. widescreen, and uh, of course that was a feature of those other two films. And you're right that he really does make good use of kind of having these faces stand out in inside the darkened car, and the 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 boxiness of that framing kind of creates this isolation and even more so than it would have if they'd just been one shots on a widescreen frame, having them be separate from each other almost by this harshly uh, boxy aspect ratio really reinforces the the essential loneliness, I guess, at the at the at the root of the of mm-hmm. the picture. Mm-hmm. And even the smallness of the font too, like very small, very confined, very constrained. Uh, yes, yeah. I, I am curious to know uh, what you make of a a line in the film that really kind of uh, made me sit up and take notice. And it's maybe not, it's not expressing something necessarily that hasn't been expressed before, but I think the, its starkness and how it dovetails with the rest of the film made it stand out to me at least. So at one point, the, uh, these two characters are... Uh, talking about time and how uh, humans are the only creatures on earth who don't live in the present. They're always aware of their future and they're always aware that at some point they are going to die. And uh, I think Jesse Buckley character says, uh, humans cannot live in the present, so they invented hope. Mm. And I, I'm curious to know your your thoughts on that picture, especially since, you know, we're coming at this uh uh, this film, uh, as Christians ourselves, you know, where hope is one of the uh, theological virtues. We we are <laughs> commanded to have hope, and I'm I'm curious to know what your estimation of that perspective or that worldview in this in this context of this film was. Oh man, yeah, I remember that, and I remember it. I th- I think I like actually said something out loud when I was watching the movie because it kind of felt a little bit like a gut punch. I don't agree with it, but at the same time, at some points that really like in my darker moments, that definitely feels almost true. Um, I don't know. I feel like because we are aware of the future in a way, I think we are capable of having hope um, in a way that other creatures may not necessarily be able to have. Um, Like, yeah, I'm aware of my own mortality. I'm aware of the mortality around of the other people around me, but I am also aware of all of the good things in this world, past, present, and future. Um, you know, I don't know, grace abounds. And I feel like, I don't know, if if you're not aware of that grace, then maybe that's something that's a little bit harder to see and then hope feels a little bit more like an invention. Um, but to me, I don't know, that the invention of hope almost feels like it's 
stabbing at something that doesn't quite feel true because it hasn't quite got the full picture. Yeah, so that uh, I, I really like those thoughts. It it made me think of just hearing you talk about grace abounds. Mm-hmm. Made me reflect on something that pops up a couple times over the course of this picture. So uh, Jesse Plemons's character, uh, the boyfriend, uh, he he grew up on a farm. Uh, that's where they they're going at the beginning of the film to visit his parents who still live on the farm. And one thing he says to Jesse Buckley's character while he's sort of giving her the the grand tour of this very sad, very cold barn where the sheep are, mm-hmm. is that you know life life on a farm is very harsh. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 brutal sometimes. And towards the end of the film, some uh, a farm animal kind of makes a reappearance of sorts. It, one of the characters ends up following. A, a pig almost as a kind of like a almost this spirit guide of mm-hmm. sorts it's it's a very interesting sequence but that kind of spoke to me a little bit of of the harshness of a world without without Christ or without any sort of grace at all where you know life on a farm is is brutal and that's really all there is to it and, and the way that Plemons's character just says that as flatly as he does and doesn't really try to elaborate on it all is kind of darkly funny in the context of that scene, mm-hmm. but also maybe speaks to this deeper pain that Kaufman seems to be trying to work out in all these films where his characters are just constantly burdens with the awareness of their inadequacies and mortality and just struggle to get out from under it and just are unable to through their own power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a good note to end that segment on. <laughs> Listeners, if you have seen this this laugh riot of a film and want to uh, share your thoughts on it, we would, of course, love to hear from you. Uh, you can always email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter. Uh, it's, there's a lot to talk about with this film, so I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Don't go anywhere. In our second segment, we're going to be continuing our film noir series, and Sarah's going to help us talk about The Third Man. Stay with us. years old 
That song you just heard was We'll Be Fine by The Surface of the Deep. Before we jump into our penultimate Summer of Darkness review, I just wanted to take a break to point you toward our Patreon. $5, as per usual, will buy you any number of odd things, one of which is our basic monthly donation level. You'll get access to some perks, one of which is the satisfaction of knowing that your generosity is what keeps this show going week after week. If you're feeling extra generous, of course, we have even higher tiers that bring rewards such as personalized recommendation lists from Wade and Me, merchandise, and even film commentary tracks. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast to find out more. And thanks. Welcome back to the second half of our show, listeners, and if you thought that the end of that first segment was a little bit of a downer, well, get ready because it's about to, we're about to go a little bit darker, or or at least equally dark, with the next film in our our, our film noir series. I'm glad that, that you're you're here with me, Sarah, to kind of uh, keep me company in the in the the summer of darkness, as we've been calling it. Melancholy is my middle name, so this is very appropriate. <laughs> Is that true? Is that actually true? Oh uh, no, no, it is not. Oh, but it would be appropriate. I, I, I kind of, I almost wish it were. <laughs> but that, that's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are going to be talking about the third man in in this later segment, and for obvious reasons, I there. This is a film that doesn't really require a whole lot of introduction because it is just an absolute towering classic of of its era and of the film noir subgenre in general. This is, of course, Carol Reed's 1949 film starring Joseph Cotton, Orson Welles, and Trevor Howard, uh, re- directed from a screenplay by, by the great Graham Greene, who, if you want to talk about spiritual angst, this is a guy who definitely knows a thing or two about that. The film follows a writer, Holly Martin, who is best known for his pulp fiction, but finds himself in post-World War II Vienna looking for his old friend who he comes to find out has been involved in some pretty shady business in the black market after the downfall of the Third Reich. In the midst of that, he meets an actress, befriends, or perhaps becomes frenemies with a police captain and discovers that this dark underbelly is something that it can sometimes be a little bit too easy to become comfortable with. So, uh, Sarah, we were talking about this film a little bit before we started uh, recording the show. You'd mentioned that you had seen it before, and I am curious to know, uh, since you, you have seen it before, you seemed to think pretty highly of it, what do you like about The Third Man? And as you were rewatching it for purposes of this podcast, were there any new facets or uh, resonances that popped out to you on the most recent viewing? Yeah. Um, so this movie was actually one of my one of the first movies I watched that was a film noir. Um, so it has a very soft spot in my heart because it was one of my introductions to the entire genre. Um, I think I actually watched it twice in the same week the first time I saw it because I loved it so much. I've I've loved it from the beginning. I've always loved it. Um, I ended up uh, trying to show it to my family who did not love it quite as much as I did, but at <laughs> least they were very gracious about it. Um, so I the stuff that I've always loved 
um, is just the the humor. Like even though it is a film noir and it is a very dark movie, there is a wit to this movie that is just very snappy and very quick, um, and a little bit cutting. And it kind of goes along with the quick cuts. Um, and this movie teaches you how to watch it very quickly. At the very beginning, there's this series of quick cuts around the city of Vienna, setting the stage, giving you a little bit of an idea of what this world is like now that it's post-World War II. They're trying to rebuild this city from four separate quarters, uh, four separate nationalities uh, governing the city with the international police. Um, and as you get the sense for the scene, there's like this sense of dark humor that talks about just how hard life is um, and how difficult it is and how everybody really relies on this black market and kind of treats it almost with a blasé manner. And even as you see the consequences of that, there's this very quick cut to a body floating in the river um, and then a cut away and it's almost smoothed over, but not quite. And I didn't even catch it the first time I saw the movie. And then the second time I saw it, I realized, oh, that's gallows humor right there. And then the whole movie just kind of takes you along for this entire ride. Um, it feels very classic noir in a lot of ways. There's a lot of shadow. There's a lot of light spilling in through shutters. Um, there's a lot of very intricate uh metalwork um, in a lot of the buildings that you're walking through, which makes sense. It's post-war Vienna. Um, and there's a lot of these Dutch angles. So the camera's a little bit tilted at a little bit of a strange angle. It would look alienating, except that it completely fits the movie. This is a this is a city that has been sort of turned on its head by the war. It's still trying to dig itself out of the bombings. Um, and everybody within the story is trying to kind of find a place for themselves within that setting on very shaky ground. Um, and I just I love that sense of we sort of know who we are, but we're not really quite there yet. And we know who we would like to be, but we're doing some very shady things, as you said, to try to get to that point. And then, of course, we're surrounded by people who are going to just take advantage of um, the they're going to take advantage they're going to take advantage of the uh, the shaky ground and try to squeeze as much money as they possibly can out of it. And so I just I love that setting because it says so much about that specific period in time. But at the same time, it's a story that if you watch it, you can understand it because there are always going to be shady people exploiting bad situations. Um, and there are always going to be people who sort of blunder into those situations like our hero, Holly Martins, whom... I love very much. He has no idea what he's getting himself into. He's in his, over his head the entire time. Um, and one of the things that I noticed on this watch around is there, there's a scene where he's trying to read a script with Anna, who is a German actress, and Holly can't even read the German properly. And she has to keep correcting him and saying, oh, no, that's that's just the stage setting. You haven't even given me my cue line yet. <laughs> um, and that's just it's such a great informing character note that doesn't call any attention to itself. It's just this guy who's blundering in and blundering out and has no idea what he's gotten himself into, doesn't understand the people he's caught himself up with. And yet, by God, he's going to try to get to the bottom of this mystery um, and find some not great things along the way. Um, I don't know. I love this movie very much. It's very dark um, and it's perfectly moody for the beginning of fall. Yeah, it does. It especially that last, that great last final shot uh, mm -hmm. of 
Holly sort of waiting for somebody on a path and those leaves are falling all around him. Uh, it does seem very uh, weirdly appropriate for, for the beginning of fall. So that's a, a really great point. And I'm also glad that you pointed out the at, during the opening montage, the the body that uh, mm-hmm. is floating in, in, you know, face down in the water that is kind of cut away from so quickly. That was something that I had not, I, I either I hadn't noticed before, or I just didn't remember was in there because I was like, wait, wait a minute, did I just see what I thought I saw? That it was a very raw moment in uh, in an era, I guess, that you're kind of used to much more like classical golden age Hollywood filmmaking where that kind of like bleakness, it it felt violent in a way, even though, you know, you don't see any any blood or you, the, there's mm-hmm. no close up on the body, but it's still an unexpected sort of gut punch that Carol Reed throws in right at the beginning to let you know, like he's not going to be pulling his punches in this movie and he really doesn't. And I think that that's maybe something that struck me in in this film was maybe even more than a lot of noirs is just how it really just seems very mournful about, about the darkness around it. I mean, that's been a feature of all of these other uh, noirs that we've been talking about over the course of this series. Um, so it's, it's a feature of noir for sure. But in this one particular... I don't know if it's, it, it might be just the Graham Greene characterization. There, there's something about this particular story that just seems very sad about what has happened to the world. And it might be just, maybe it's that post-war setting that does it. The, the fact that there's been this huge devastation that has happened. It's only been a few few years since then. This city is still recovering from it. Mm-hmm. And there's really no going back again. And I, I think that maybe it's that overall atmosphere that kind of hangs over everything that gives this film so much of its power. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that there's there's kind of a violence to this movie as well, because like you don't see a lot of violence. You see a lot of people chasing each other through sewers, um, and you see a lot of implied violence and you see the consequences of violence in a very in a relatively restrained way um but you see the scars of world war ii all over the face of this city to the point where it almost feels like it fades into the background for a little bit until people start scrambling up and over piles of bricks and then you realize oh no the there was a bomb that hit that very part of the ground and it's going to take a very long time to be able to rebuild that building that this man is now scrambling across. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, and I'm glad you, you brought up the, the rubble because I think the location shooting is part of what makes this film so indelible. It's kind of amazing that they were able to capture some of these shots. We were, you know, the, the previous film that Wade and I reviewed in this series was Ryan Johnson's brick. Ah, so good. It's it's such a great movie, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I commented on when we were talking about that film was how all of the the scenes on the high school campus are almost eerily deserted. Like there aren't any adults around, mm-hmm. and so there there are these characters who are kind of chasing each other through the campus, or you know, hiding from one another, or just sort of hanging out. But there's really not a whole lot of other people hanging around them and that kind of gives this that gives brick this 
desolate feel to it. And something similar to that is happening here in The Third Man, only it's not on a high school campus. It's the city of Vienna. Some of these nighttime shots, it's just these Viennese cities, uh, Viennese streets just completely deserted. It's like the apocalypse has happened. Mm -hmm. And there's just like two figures walking down a street, chasing or chasing each other down a street. Mm -hmm. And that loneliness is just... It, it it's a really great example of a director being able to use exterior spaces to suggest something very interior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then occasionally when there is, um, I don't know, a, a civilian, for lack of a better word, who shows up on the street, it almost makes the setting feel even more strange because you get old men selling balloons um, amongst the rubble of the city that they probably grew up in. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, that's there's the scene where the balloon man comes up and interrupts a stakeout and it feels to me like that man could tell so many stories about this particular city in this particular time that are probably just as interesting as what's going on on screen too so i'm i'm almost sad that they shoo him away um and try to keep him from preventing this high stakes stakeout that's going on as well um, because I am sure that he has so many other stories that he could tell too. Carol Reed really does pay a lot of attention to faces in this film too. Mm-hmm. There's so there's so there's that one scene where uh, uh, Martin's and uh, uh, Schmidt, Anna Schmidt, uh, his actor's friend, are sort of walking back to his accommodations after an evening together, and uh, they come home and somebody's been been killed. Mm-hmm. And there's this huge crowd kind of gathered outside the building, and uh, a child uh, kind of cries out and says that Holly Martins is the murderer. And we get this series of shots of these these townspeople, these these Vien Vienesians, uh, Viennese people, uh, kind of looking at him distrustfully and. Carol Reed just cuts from face to face. And in those, you know, you see all the suspicion, of course, and it's there. It's a very threatening series of shots. And yet you still, it, you, you see that these are faces, they've seen a lot of, a lot of bad things. Mm-hmm. And they're right to be distrustful of an outsider, of somebody they don't know who isn't part of their community. And that's that's something that Reed just uses so well to suggest not just what's going on in the present moment, but also an entire history that informs what's going on on screen right at that moment. Yeah, those quick cuts do so much heavy lifting, too, because they're all shot like extreme close up and kind of from below. And I think it's another emphasis of... Holly Martins is out of his depth. He's in over his head. All of these people are looking down on him. They know more than he does, or at least they think they do, and maybe he thinks that they do. Um, and he has no way of being able to catch up with them because he doesn't even speak the language. You kind of get those quick cuts, too, um, during the final stakeout where they're all waiting for Harry Lyme to show up um, at the cafe, where it's just quick cuts intense close-up from a low angle of all of these policemen just watching and waiting and you could just cut the tension with a knife because the music is cut out and it's just silent and you're just you're just sitting there waiting with them yeah you you said his name so let's (laughs) let's talk about harry lime because this is a character who uh his presence pervades basically the entire film. You know, Holly Martins arrives in Vienna wanting to meet up with him. He finds out that Harry Lyme has been killed 
And so he's kind of going around trying to figure out, okay, well, what happened? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we find out that Harry Lyme is Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. And he has, of course, that, that wonderful grand entrance. And he's a very charismatic guy, even though I, I was surprised on this viewing that Wells isn't in as much of the film as I remembered him being. I remembered him being kind of like almost a, a, a second lead or at least a very prominent supporting role, but he's really only in a handful of scenes. And yet Harry Lyme just towers over the rest of this film. He's just this constant unseen presence when he's not on camera it's got to be that like impish grin or something yeah because i i thought for some reason he showed up around the halfway mark and it's something like two-thirds or almost three-quarters of the way through the movie he finally shows up yeah and and you know you 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 think of that scene on the ferris wheel where (laughs) he he reveals that he's really not a good person and but he does it in kind of you know orson welles is kind of has this chummy you know old boy kind of vigor about him he doesn't seem to the way that he talks is such a wonderful counterpoint and you have to wonder whether Mm -hmm. carol reed directed wells in this way or whether this was just a choice on wells's part that uh reed just loved and, and kept but the the counterpoint of Harry Lyme's very breezy speech mm-hmm. and the actual content of what he is saying and the ideas that he is advocating is just, it's galvanizing. It's its horrifying, but it's also very charismatic. You imagine he, he's almost like Lucifer. He, he's mm-hmm. like very seductive until you kind of stop and say, okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We, you can't say those things. Those are terrible things to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I'm not even sure that the full weight of what he was saying really sunk in for me until this time around. And I've seen this movie four times now, I think. Um, It's very easy to get distracted by the way that he approaches the world. He's almost he's so blasé that he almost invites you to come along with him. Um, and he says, like, it's it's no big deal. I don't think it's any big deal. All of those dots aren't really people. They're just dots to me. Um, and then, I don't know, I appreciate that Holly Martin kind of backs off a second and you realize that he understands what Orson Welles' character, what Harry Lyme is, is saying, um, even if he's not fully sold on just how bad Harry Lyme is at first. Like, he still needs some additional convincing. And that rings very true to me. Um it's a very, I don't know, the story is almost unbelievable, but it's rooted in enough truth that it makes sense and I'm along for the ride, no matter how crazy the twists get. Well, one thing that I found so interesting, and again, I don't know if this was something I just didn't notice on my initial viewing or if it's something I had just forgotten, but this film does really do a great job of dramatizing how we really want to believe the best of Mm, the mm -hmm. people that we know that we don't want to believe that our uh our boyhood friend could uh become an amoral black market profiteer we don't want to believe that uh, a romantic partner could have this extremely dark side to him uh these are things that you don't want to believe and you might cling to them even when it might be better to kind of 
your cut your losses, so to speak. Yeah, really... and even like even when um, he does admit that Harry Lyme is a black market profiteer, everybody around him says, "Well, everybody is." He probably was out selling tires or something, and they treat it as like, "Oh, it's just tires; it's no big deal. He's not actually harming anyone." So even, even oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, and even uh, Anna Schmidt, who who's been seeing him, even after his, uh, even after she's been told by the police captain mm-hmm. exactly what Lime has been doing, she doesn't she doesn't want to believe it, and she doesn't really forgive Holly Martin's for doing the right thing and mm-hmm. betraying his friend, and that. I know that that contrast between you know betrayal being normally such a bad thing and yet it being the right thing in the situation but also it being a stain that can't really that Holly Martins can't really wash off. Mm-hmm. I found that that dynamic to be very interesting to think about and also to just sort of empathize with each of the the characters in that triangle. Yeah, yeah, like if I were to run across Harry Lyme, like I'm a naturally very trusting person, I would probably believe everything he said. I it's it's such a difficult situation that Holly Martins is put in and Anna Schmidt is put in, um, and I find that tension incredibly compelling. And I appreciate that they have very very different reactions to what Harry Lyme has done and to what everybody else is doing in order to combat that. Yeah, it's it's I guess it's one reason. Among many, why this film has kind of persevered for as long as it has mm-hmm. is not just you know those those great visuals, which maybe we haven't even talked enough about just the the wonderful use of shadows yeah. and you know, casting casting these silhouettes on buildings so they're you know twenty feet tall of a you know of just a single person. I mean that's a whole other conversation, but the the drama at the heart of the story I think is. Something that is due a lot more to to Graham Greene than anyone else, just the way that he's able to construct these characters and, and kind of have all these gears fit together. Mm-hmm. And that's something that makes the film you I you know, I want to go back and, and rewatch it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just talking about it because it does there's just there's so much interesting visually, but the visuals buttress what's going on dramatically. And I just I, I, I love that the film works on so many levels. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And the one visual that sticks with me, probably even more than the Dutch angles and all of the shadows is there's the moment at this in the sewers at the end, um, when Harry Lyme is finally being hunted down where, um, the police officers have him cornered. They think they have him and they turn this searchlight on to this dark tunnel and they just sit and listen for a second and they take a beat, which I, I love that this movie takes its time going about telling its story. Um, and then after they've taken a beat, they turn on the searchlight and there's this incredible shot of Orson Welles from behind, just kind of crouched in the light with his arms straight out. And you can tell that he's been caught and he's been surprised by the fact that he's been caught in the light and also caught in his own lies. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's such a great image and it's one that stuck with me for years ever since I first watched this movie. Yeah. It's one of those indelible moments that makes for uh, an indelible film, especially when there are so many of those moments are just collected into one place. Mm -hmm. Listeners, 
If you have seen The Third Man and find it to be just as indelible or have some other moments that we haven't mentioned yet uh, as far as what stuck with you or themes that you noticed or moments that you've loved, of course, we'd love to hear from the, from you about those things. You can email us or tweet us, as we said earlier on the episode. We would love to hear from you. Uh, that'll be uh, it for this episode. Sarah, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about both of these movies. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, if, if listeners wanted to track down some of your, your film criticism or other writing, uh, how could they do that? Um, the easiest way to do that would be to just follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dodgy Boffin. That's D-O-D-G-Y-B-O-F-F-I-N. Um, and uh, as Kevin mentioned earlier, um, I write and podcast for Think Christian, and I also write for Brightwell Darkroom. Um, Think Christian has an ebook uh, about pop music and the Psalms that's coming out pretty soon. Um, and I'm excited to say that I have an essay I'm really proud of that's going to be in that particular ebook. Um, and then also keep an eye on my Twitter. Um, I have a book coming out in the next few months um, about alien and the conception of evil um, as framed through Catherine Keller's theological work. So uh, keep an eye on that space. And I will be certain to yell about science fiction and about my own writing <laughs> as much as possible. You you heard it here first, listeners. Definitely uh, do some yelling of your own to spread the word because those projects just sound absolutely fantastic. Listeners, thanks for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristPopCulture.com. Make sure to rate us and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out about the show. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us search for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan for Seeing and Believing. We'll see you next week. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.